Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. Now here's your host, Annette Stevenson. Since 1970, a state law called the Public Employee Relations Act, Act 195, has made it lawful for most non-management public employees in Pennsylvania to unionize, bargain collectively, or strike. Act 195 obligates public employers to bargain in good faith with the representatives of unionized employees over wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment. The agreed upon terms are documented in writing. Public employers are not required to bargain over matters of inherent managerial policy. All or nearly all public school teachers in Pennsylvania belong to some labor union that has been recognized as the exclusive representative of that category of employees for purposes of collective bargaining. Other categories of school employees may belong to other bargaining units that the school district employer must bargain with. In most cases, these bargaining units are affiliated with a statewide labor organization. Act 88 of 1992 later added provisions to the school code supplementing Act 195 for public school employees only. The primary aim of Act 88 was to attempt to reduce the frequency of teacher strikes by specifying timelines for the negotiations process, establishing procedures for assisting unproductive negotiations and resolving impasses and limiting the number and length of strikes to assure completion of the school year. 2020 marks the 50th anniversary of the passage of the Public Employee Relations Act. In a nutshell, the act allows non-management employees in Pennsylvania to engage in collective bargaining over wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment. This includes public school employees such as teachers and other professional staff. Here today with us to help us understand this better and how it pertains to today's public schools as an employer is Stuart Nade, our Head of Legal Services for PSVA. Thanks for joining us, Stuart. Good morning, Annette. It's great to be here. So can you start, Stuart, by giving some examples of the kinds of things that are decided by collective bargaining in the public schools? Well, it's uh, obviously more than about just salaries, although that, you know, is certainly a very important thing that gets negotiated um, in the collective bargaining process. But collective bargaining agreements, which is the written agreement that, you know, that comes as the result of the bargaining process and the negotiations is um, cover a a whole range of things, benefits, uh, compensation, work rules, uh, you know, who can do what kind of work, when they can do it what kinds of schedules are, are, are in there um, that limit when they can be assigned to work or, or, or asked to work. Uh, disciplinary procedures, a very important aspect of collective bargaining agreements are grievance and arbitration provisions for grievances, and uh, which are basically disputes about um, how the contract is being implemented or interpreted by, you know, by the employer or, or the union, um, and that can include disciplinary matters as well as other kinds of things, including benefits and how those are administered and, and so on. Everything from various kinds of, of leaves and sick days and personal days, okay. release time for union officials to, to do their union work uh, away from their, their normal jobs and, and, and that kind of thing. Okay. Now, what are the roles at the schools that are involved in the process of collective bargaining? And then beyond the roles involved, what does that process look like? Well, 
we'll start with the negotiations because, and that's not the only thing we're talking about when we talk about collective bargaining, because once you have a contract, it's then administered and there are other people who play a part in, in how the contract is actually administered over the, over its lifetime, you know, for mm -hmm. the number of years before it expires. Mm -hmm. But at the negotiations process, um, each side will have a negotiating team uh, for the, you know, that, that negotiates the successor contract when the last one is getting ready to expire. Um, at, on the employer side, the, the school board side, the negotiating team may include school board members. Uh, it may include administrators. There will be um, people who are at the table. There will be people who are sort of behind the scenes. Most school districts, uh, and, and we, we greatly encourage uh, them to use professional labor counsel to assist them in the bargaining process. It's really not something, um, it's not a good idea. I, I refer to it as do-it-yourself surgery if you try to do this on your own. Oh. Um, and why? Because on the other side, you'll have a team, of, a negotiating team from the union, which may include some professionals that are supplied by their you know, their parent union, uh, their, their state level parent union okay. that the local is a, is a member of, but it may also include some teachers, uh, you know, the union, you know, union leadership and that kind of thing. But those folks didn't just raise their hands a few months before bargaining started and said, Ooh, ooh I'd be happy to, to be on your bargaining team this year. Mm -hmm. They've generally been in, in some very intensive training for years okay before they sit down at the table and it's so it's it's not a good idea to to think you can step into that ring um you know at, without that kind of training and that's where the professional labor council come in so that process will lead to um throughout the negotiating process those might be the most visible faces although bargaining does take place generally behind closed doors it's not a not a public process for the most part but then ultimately the um school board has to ratify the final contract when it's been tentatively agreed to. And along the way, the school board will be briefed on, you know, what the, what the back and forth is, where the positions have changed. The school board will give the negotiating team a certain scope of authority within which to bargain and make, make agreements. There will be agreements about certain issues along the way that are then settled and, you know, put aside while they focus on maybe things that are, uh, they're having more difficulty coming to agreement on. And then at the end, you know, you go back and you gather up all the things, all the side issues that were, were decided, were, you know, basically tentatively agreed to along the way, um, and then bring a final agreement, which often isn't in written form, um, you know, completely spelled out in written form when the school board votes on it. But the, the basic principles are all mapped out. And then, of course, that's subject to the party's agreement on the actual wording that comes into that. And, of course, the union membership also ratifies the final agreement, and they generally go along with the recommendation of their negotiating team and their and their the leadership of their local union. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's then once you get past that, once you have a contract, then the roles shift uh, a little bit because um, the the school district administration is going to be involved in the daily administration of what the um, you know what the contract says about you know work rules assignments disciplinary procedures, how pay and compensation are administered, mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing. And um, the school board may uh, at some point have to modify policies to okay. reflect what was agreed to in the, um, in the collective bargaining agreement. On the union side, um, employees, when they are dealing with management on certain issues, or in, will have representation from um, you know, the union president or other, other uh, local leadership for, um, on the union side. And, 
So those roles um, kind of then become the, the face of how the contract is administered mm -hmm. throughout this process. And, and I think it's important to remember that um, collective bargaining is about the employees being represented. And so the actual contract negotiation is a big part of that. But, you know, they're, they're represented for a lot of other things. And the union is their exclusive representative for that category of employees. Okay. Okay. Now, what are some of the common misconceptions, do you think, about collective bargaining as it relates to school governance? <laughs> well, one, one common misconception is a belief that the... Um, that before a union goes on strike, when there's been a bargaining impasse, mm -hmm. that the strike is um, voted on, you know, on the eve of the strike by the, by the rank and file membership. And that's often not true. Okay. Often that strike authorization has been given early on in the negotiations process, and it's strictly the union leadership that decides when the strike occurs. I see. So it could have been in the discussion for some time. Well, that's right. It's, it's just something that the union leadership, the union's negotiating team has in their back pocket. They get that early on, they keep it in their back pocket, they use it when they see fit, and they usually don't go back to the rank and file for a strike authorization vote again. Okay, understood. So that's, that's kind, of a, a, a kind of a misconception. I think another misconception is this um, belief that bargaining should be held in public. Okay. And um, it's, it's a very intensive process, and I'd say that most labor counsel uh, for employers, including school district employers, would advise against that. Um, it, it leads to things that are unproductive and so on and so forth. Now, there are times when, when one side or the other will, will wage some sort of a public statement campaign to put pressure on the other side, mm -hmm. um, but they have to be careful how they do that uh, because the, the, the employer again, is required by law to deal with the union through its exclusive representatives. And so you don't want to, you don't want to make statements in a way that bypasses that, you know, that process. Although everybody has a first amendment right to communicate what their positions are on things like collective bargaining. And um, so that, th those are a couple examples of misconceptions that exist. Yeah, public misconceptions. What are some of the issues that historically have posed a particular challenge for schools during collective bargaining? Well, compensation has its own challenges. And over the years, there have been uh, a lot of shifts um, in how the parties, and, and this is, is both the union and the, and the, the uh, school districts, approach how their salary scales operate. And there have been different philosophies applied. And so what we're talking about is um, the steps that employees move to with their seniority as they, they move up a step based on seniority, mm -hmm. as well as um, what they call column movement, which is where they might go into a different column based on advanced degrees and, and additional credits and, and perhaps other factors. Um, and those can sometimes get all bunched up and create some very large steps. It's not all incremental. And then, the, you know, one side or the other will see the need to, to compact the salary, the, you know, the salary scale into a fewer number of steps. Okay. Um, it, it, and it has gone back and forth over the years, and, it's, uh, it, and, and that can be a, a great challenge. But I'd say one of the biggest challenges over at least the, the 30 years I've been sort of observing and, and, and getting involved in, the, in that process is mm -hmm. health insurance. Oh, okay. Health insurance was always an important benefit of, uh, you know, that, that 
that the, the, the union and the employee side has been, you know, fought vigorously to get, uh, but one of the, the, you know, and how rich the plan is, what the deductibles are, mm-hmm. what the, um, you know, wh- whether or not there's even going to be any employee cost sharing, okay. um, you know, beyond things like deductibles and co-pays and things sure. like that, or even if there's going to be deductibles and co-pays. And uh, it, it has gotten to the point over time that at times it's the, the salaries themselves have kind of taken a back seat, or at least the salary discussions have gotten completely hung up because of the, you know, the health insurance issues. Um, yeah, that's so a big area. Been a very contentious thing, and of course, as the as the cost of health insurance and healthcare in general has skyrocketed over the years, that's really magnified that as a as an issue at the bargaining table. Yeah, I mean, it's impacting the take home amounts, you know, for these individuals. So, and probably pretty dramatically in some instances, you know. For sure, for sure, and and another um, thing that can be um, it can be a factor. Job security is really issue number one. Oh, sure. When it comes to labor relations on the employee side. Um, and so, you know, when you get into job security issues, those are going to be uh, very important. And there's a side piece of negotiating that has to happen before an employer can outsource, can contract out work that was previously done by employees who were unionized. Okay. You, an employer can't unilaterally say, we're no longer going to operate our own bus fleet. We're going to contract it out to, you know, bus contractors. Okay. Uh, and you, you you can't just do that unilaterally. If those if those employees were unionized, you have to negotiate that. You have to bargain over that, and basically go to the union and say, "We're thinking about doing this because we think it can save us a lot of money. This is what we're thinking. Do you have a, a counter proposal to make that will, you know, help help make more financial sense than where we believe we are today? Mm-hmm. In other words, you're asking for concessions." Sure. So that's possibly another area of misconception, even, you know, in yes. the understanding of how that can happen. And until you reach impasse, which is not something that, uh, you know, can be defined in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can take, you know, many months, even years before you get to what the courts might, um, or the, the Labor Relations Board, the Pennsylvania Labor Relations Board, would view as genuine impasse such that the employer can then say, you know what, this we're not getting anywhere here where we are now entitled to unilaterally do this because we've bargained at the impasse. Um, it's a long process. And if you don't, um, if you don't win the dispute over whether you would impasse, you have a lot of eggs to unscramble. And yeah, you mentioned the Pennsylvania labor relations board. Can you explain what that is? The, the Pennsylvania labor relations board or the PLRB mm-hmm. is sort of the, state analog to the National Labor Relations Board. Now, the National Labor Relations Board and the National Labor Relations Act applies to private sector bargaining and, and public sector in the, in the federal, you know, among federal employees. Mm-hmm. They have, have a role in that. Um, but because we're talking about public sector employees in Pennsylvania, it's the Pennsylvania Labor Relations Board that administers Act 195, uh, the, mm-hmm. the Pennsylvania uh, the, the Public Employee Relations Act, and also some other laws, there, and that's not the only law that governs public sector employees, uh, state and local government employees in Pennsylvania. Um, the policemen, firemen, and certain other categories of public safety employees uh, operate under different laws. They don't operate under Act 195. Um, okay. But the PLRB administers that too, and they, okay. will, um, they will rule on charges of unfair labor practices, 
um, and they also uh, rule on matters that relate to you know who is going to be the exclusive representative of the employees mm -hmm. you know when when a group of employees decides to unionize they you know they have different ways of indicating that preference and when a sufficient percentage of employees have said we want to be represented by such and such a union uh, if there are disputes over that the the, uh, the PLRB will rule on those too okay. and if the scope of who's in the union needs to change um, you know then then there will be some adjustments in in you know who that uh, union is certified to be the exclusive representative for what kinds of employees come together because um, you, you can't just have one union that represents every category of employees in most cases um, they, they only the people who have what they call a community of interest you know various kinds of employees can have a community of interest that allows them to be represented by a single collective bargaining representative um, okay. and so those kinds of issues also go to the Pennsylvania Labor Relations Board Okay, understood. And now with respect to management staff uh, um, in the school sector, so including the superintendent, how are compensation and benefits decided for management staff since they are not permitted to engage in collective bargaining? Correct. Um, it, it, the lowest level of management staff, the first level supervisors, um, have always been able to um, organize okay. and for certain purposes, but they, they couldn't necessarily have their own negotiations, collectively bargain, and they can't strike. That's under Act 195. Okay. Um, but they, under a section of the school code uh, that is commonly referred to as, as Act 93, um, and this, of course, we talk about Act numbers, there's probably nine, Act, there's probably an Act 93 every year. Yeah. This Act 93 goes back to, I believe, 1986 or so. Okay. And that was the statute that was passed that said um, for management level employees and anybody else who's not allowed to be in a union by virtue of the kind of position they're in are, are part of what they have to be uh, covered by what's called an administrator compensation plan. Okay. And the administrator compensation plan is a plan adopted by the school board, but it has to be uh, the result of a meet and discuss process if the employees who it covers ask for that. And meet and discuss is not the same as negotiations. It's more of an input process. And these Act 93 plans are not agreements. So it's not a negotiating process. It, it, mutual agreement isn't, isn't necessary. It's desirable, but mm -hmm. ultimately it's the school board that decides what the Act 93 plan is going to consist of, what it's gonna provide for. And it's required to outline the salary and benefits. Um, I th unfortunately, uh, there are a lot of Act 93 plans that have begun to look like collective bargaining agreements. Uh, and go beyond salary and benefits and begin to look at all kinds of other things, including evaluation procedures and disciplinary procedures and work rules and, and so on and so forth, um, which is probably not a good thing. It's not, it's something we, we discourage, mm -hmm. but a lot of them have gotten that way. Why? Because almost everybody who's in those ranks once was in a union okay. um, and they're kind of used to having, having those things spelled out somewhere. Sure. Um, so that's not, not terribly surprising that, that that happens. It's just not necessarily the best thing for the employer to have uh, to lock itself in. And an Act 93 plan has to be in effect for a minimum of one year. Okay. And you can't change it. Even if the employees agree, you can't change it until it expires. And uh -huh. that's an interesting limitation to an Act 93 plan. I, I tell you, there's another misconception that... Um, that I hear from time to time or I sense from time to time. And that's that 
collective bargaining and, and unionization, and not necessarily collective bargaining, but unionization of public sector employees started in 1970 when this law was passed, at least in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, the, the question of whether public employees should be allowed to unionize has been, was around for many years before that. I think uh, the debate started to intensify in the late 1940s. And there's a lot of different, different opinions about whether or not it was a good thing for sure. uh, public employees to be unionized and not just, you know, the first responders uh, um, and, and so on. Um, and even in Pennsylvania, years before Act uh, 195 became law, teachers were striking. Uh, you know, I, they, they, I remember they were trying to negotiate contracts. They already belonged to unions, which they had a First Amendment right to do. Mm -hmm. um, but they were trying to negotiate their salaries. And when they weren't, when the negotiations weren't going the way they, they wanted, they, they, were, they were striking. Yeah, I saw that myself as a, as a student in the Philadelphia school system ah. when, when the schools were shut down. And this was well before 1970. Yeah. Okay. That's a really good, I think we've kind of covered it start to finish as kind of, you know, a nutshell version of the act. Is there anything you would add to it that you feel like even the public might want to know about it? Well, I mean, we, we publish a book called uh, Labor Relations for School Leaders. Oh, great. And the, the uh, intent of, of that, the purpose of that book is to basically provide a crash course for administrators and school directors who are part of the process to sort of understand, you know, a lot of the ins and outs that just are not intuitive and that, um, you know, the, the labor attorneys that represent school districts are constantly re-educating new faces within the school the sure. district administration and on the school board about. And so the, the purpose of this is it's an easy, easy to read thing, covers a lot of ground, uh, talks about lots of other misconceptions and some mm -hmm. pitfalls and, and, and things, uh, you know, like in terms of bargaining strategies and, you know, how the whole process works. So, you know, for those that are involved in the process or think they may be involved in the process, um, there are places where you can get a, a real good education in a hurry. And that's one of them. That's great. That's great to know. I think that the misconceptions are what most folks read in the headlines, unfortunately, mm -hmm. or at least playing upon the misconceptions. Um, some of the stories are angled. So I, I think that's great to, for folks to know more about actually how that process works. And uh, members of the media would benefit greatly from that. From, yeah, from the absolutely. information in there as well. You're right. Okay. Well, we'll include that resource um, with the episode of the podcast so that um, listeners can access that additional information if they would like to. Thanks so much for joining us uh, on this episode of the podcast, Stuart. Thanks for spending the time explaining this. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Keystone Education Radio is a production of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. This episode is brought to you in part by Substitute Teacher Service and CM Region Insurance Company. Visit our website at keyedradio.org, where a transcript of today's episode can be found, along with access to past episodes on a range of education-related topics. Subscribe to the podcast and you'll receive notifications of new episodes. And look for us on social media so you can like, share, and follow. This is Annette Stevenson saying thank you for listening to Keystone Education Radio. The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.